Hello, I'm Robin Badley, the editorial registrar at the BMJ. Our latest head-to-head debate asks, should action take priority over further research on public health? I'm joined today by the authors of the Head to Head, two very well-qualified guests to debate the issue. Simon Capewell is Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at the University of Liverpool. He trained in general internal medicine before moving into public health. He's also a founder member of Action on Sugar, a charity working to reach a consensus with the food industry and government over the harmful effects of a high sugar diet and bring about a reduction in the amount of sugar in processed foods. On today's particular issue, Simon argues that It is well known which evidence-based interventions work and that to wait for yet more evidence is ethically unacceptable. Aileen Clark is Professor of Public Health Research at Warwick Medical School. She studied medicine and practiced for a short time as a GP before subsequently training in public health. Aileen set up and now runs Warwick Evidence, a team which undertakes reviews and evidence synthesis on the clinical and cost-effectiveness of healthcare interventions on behalf of policymakers. On today's particular issue, Aileen, in response, has argued that if the causes of ill health are clear and all that is required is for us to take action, why hasn't this happened? So my first question goes to you, Simon. Um, You say that politics is actually about evidence to reduce ambiguity rather than reducing uncertainty and that policy change needs an effective story to exploit windows of opportunity. Some cynics may say, well, policymakers can find and select evidence for any story they want to tell. So do you think that the take action stance which you hold lends fuel to misguided policymaking? Thank you, Robin. Not at all. I I, I think uh, if we look at successful policymaking, whether it's uh, creating uh, safe water to drink or clean air to breathe, then it's all about building up the evidence and then public health advocates mobilising that evidence, getting attention from politicians, uh, building public demand, public support, and then moving the process forward. Aileen, is there any aspect of that that you disagree with? No, I don't think there is, actually. I think Simon's absolutely right. It's about building up the underlying understanding of topics. And I suppose for me, that's where research is so key. Okay. if I ca- continue, uh, Simon, with, with that same piece, uh, part of the piece you've written, um, that effective political actors use evidence to draw attention to urgent problems, encouraging policymakers to understand them primarily as epidemics and generate demand for evidence-based public health solutions. You, One hears sometimes of people in the media complaining of epidemic fatigue and that maybe the public uh, sort of get a bit too used to hearing about epidemics. Do you recognise this as a potential risk in the sort of action-first approach? I do, Robin, recognise it as part of the public debate. And Cat uh, Smith in Edinburgh has, has talked about policy development as the battle of ideas. And so on the one hand, we have speak, people speaking on behalf of the public good, Uh, not only our own families, but our own communities and wider society. And on the other hand, we have vested interests. Change represents a threat to the vested interests like tobacco companies and junk food industry that are making a big profit out of promoting harmful goods at the moment. They and their spokespersons are going to push back and they are going to use a variety of tactics to push back and try and block our healthy public uh, initiatives. 
Okay, if I was to pick up on that for for Aileen, um, you in your piece argue that research is vital to interpret the likely effects of changes in our attitudes, cultures and society, as well as in our politics, economics and ultimately in our health and well-being. But you do hear some people say, and maybe even um, Simon may agree with some of this, that sort of evidence runs out pretty quick when it comes to policymaking. So I suppose my question to you is, um, firstly, how easy is it to get robust perspective data on these issues before actually undertaking any policy and uh, enacting any policy? And um, could you give us some possible examples of this? And, and following on from that, in response to what Simon's just said, um, is there a risk that demanding sufficient evidence results in a sort of dangerous inertia? My view is that, it, of course, it's not always easy to get robust data, um, and um, we've got some very we've got some very good examples of obvious public health measures that haven't been um, put into practice, and we don't quite know why. And fluoride in our water is one of them, and um, uh, for example, NHS staff taking up the flu jab is another two things where you think it's absolutely obvious what we need to do and yet we haven't we don't know why people aren't doing those things and actually what i'm saying is it's not necessarily easy but it's probably essential to do the follow through we know about the etiology the underlying causes some of the underlying causes of ill health we don't necessarily know precisely about what to do simon so what do you think about that if we, if we don't really know what we're you know what to do about the data we have. How can we take action? Uh, I, I would profoundly disagree with with Aileen there. I I think we know very well what are the causes of most avoidable avoidable diseases and deaths, and we know very well what interventions work best. When we think about tobacco control or or alcohol or making cars safe or whatever, this is not about educating individuals. This is not about voluntary initiatives by uh, manufacturers. This is about regulation. This is about taxation. These are the big powerful levers. They've worked in the past with with uh, ensuring that our water is safe to drink and that the, the smog in London has disappeared. They're working now uh, with smoke-free legislation and with the levy on sugary drinks. So uh, we, we know what the main health challenges are in society and we know what are the powerful levers that we need to pull. The key challenge is to recruit politicians and, and public support to, to, to uh, progress specific policies. I suppose that would be one of my points really. How do we recruit um, politicians and how do we recruit the public? How do we change hearts and minds? It's all very well to say um, you know, we know you're, we all eat too much sugar, salt and fat and therefore we've just got to stop it and we've got to put up taxes on these things and then we'll all stop it and then we'll be fine. And actually, that's too simplistic a model. That's my argument. It's not that regulation isn't, isn't absolutely vital and useful, but it's not the end of the story. I mean, Eileen, in your in your piece, you do talk a lot about the need to better understand these levers that affect behaviour change, what what you call behaviour change science. Um, maybe one could argue that the advertising industry has been very effective at manipulating our biology to propagate bad habits. Could you give us any examples of where sort of similar levers have been manipulated to positive benefit on a large scale? I, I suppose I'm 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 completely aware at the moment of the negative ones. 
But if I were to think about it, the positive lever is, um, for example, with smoking in public places, we didn't really understand. In fact, we didn't understand for sure what would happen if we were to ban smoking in public places. We didn't have the um, information to really understand the follow through. We knew we knew that in, in places that had implemented this, smoking rates had gone down. We didn't know if that would work properly in England. It's worked spectacularly well, in fact. And it's obviously about behavioural issues that we don't fully understand. How do people feel, uh, I don't know, out, literally out in the cold? Why do people feel ashamed of their smoking in a way that they didn't before? We haven't, we haven't really got the full understanding of that. So I suppose in a sense, uh, but there's always more to do to understand these things and to make them better, to make them better interventions. And on that point, as you say, you say more research is needed to understand how a person can make long-term choices to sustain and improve their health. Um, what would you see as being an acceptable end point for such an aim? At what point do you say, well, I, you know, fine, we think we understand this issue well enough. And could you give any examples where maybe that end point has been reached on any particular behavioural science issue? I'm, a, I'm an academic researcher. I mean, I'm not blue skies, but I'm an academic researcher, so I'm not going to look for an endpoint. I think there's always more we can know. I, I'm, I've, I've looked at my own, um, um, I'm, sorry, uh, to go back, my, my understanding of our diets and how we approach our diets is that there will be a limit to taxation, the effects of taxation, for example, on sugar or on fat or on salt. There will be a limit at which point people continue to eat unhealthily, partly because they like eating unhealthily and I think we, we do far too little research to really understand what the, perhaps even what the biochemical mechanism is, but also what the behavioural mechanism is. People aren't always thinking of their health as their foremost aim in life. They're also thinking of, of um, I mean, I'm not going to say enjoying themselves, but of having a nice time, you know, sometimes allowing themselves a treat. One of the problems is that our treats get out of hand. Mm. I'm glad you've mentioned sugar because that's obviously something that Simon's been involved with and still is. Um, and I was going to move on to use that maybe as an example. So, Simon, in your piece, uh, you met, you say that waiting for more evidence is ethically unacceptable. Um, and so my question to you is, why is this an ethical imperative and with whom does the ethical responsibility lie? Um, and then maybe as a further second point, does, does the locus of that responsibility change depending on the public health issue? Does this responsibility, is it different when we talk about sugar intake than if we talk about air pollution? I wonder if you could expand that, on thank, that. Thank you very much, Robin. That's, that's a fundamentally important point. So, so who is responsible for our health? Obviously, we all are. However, when we start thinking about our families, our friends, our communities, then we desire a healthy environment. One of the things we've not really touched on yet is the difference between the structural approach and the agentic approach. We've, we've heard a lot about choice. We've heard a lot about individual behavior, but that really is a very naive perspective. And it's one, funnily enough, that the industry favors. The thing that most powerfully affects human behavior is the environment that we live in. So if we think about tobacco control, for instance, it's all about the three A's, the three A's of affordability, availability, and acceptability. And as Aileen has, has stressed, uh, the, one of the fundamental 
uh, powerful levers recently in reducing smoking prevalence behavior was that people couldn't smoke in pubs or cafes any longer. So the environment changed and that pushed uh, individual behavior. It's the same with affordability. Every time the price of cigarettes is cranked up, demand goes down. And likewise, availability. If, if suddenly there are no more vending machines in toilets and, and pubs, then it's much more difficult to get those, those cigarettes. And indeed, they're now hidden out of sight. In, in supermarkets, so there's no uh, uh, point of display, um, point of sale display. So the 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 idea that most health behaviour is 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 individual choice is a nonsense. Most poor people do not choose to be poor. Most smokers would rather not be smokers. Most people who are seriously overweight would rather be thin when the industry points a finger at them and say they have made a lifestyle choice that is manifestly unfair and it's profoundly uh, incorrect from a scientific point of view. I, I suppose my point is that if we think about the PHG evidence on people taking a brisk 10-minute walk, people absolutely know that um, taking a brisk 10-minute walk is not a huge thing to do. It would improve their health. There's been plenty of publicity around it, and yet they don't do it. Why? I mean, th the fact is that um, many people live in a situation where they could take a walk. So I, I don't think the argument that they all live beside motorways or they, they, you know, they all live somewhere where it's absolutely impossible to walk will, will hold. Can we I, can I... still have to target individual behaviour. And just because individual behaviour is targeted by industry as a, as a let-out clause, you know, more research into individual behaviour, doesn't mean that our own ways of approaching our own health are not important. It's too simplistic. It's too medical model to say, this is the cause. This is what I'm going to do about it. This is what you need to do about it. Just do it. Because actually saying just do it to people is a dangerous thing to do, I think. Can I come back on that? Mm, of course. I, I, I'm, I'm very pleased that Aileen's raised, raised the uh, topic of, of physical activity. And, and I agree, physical activity levels in the UK are, are uh, depressingly low. However there is an evidence base. And when we look at it, there are an awful lot of interventions that have been tried, information uh, sheets through doors and, and GPs giving prescriptions and uh, messages on the TV. They don't work. What works is active travel policies. So if uh, there is a lot of public transport available, people and uh, p personal individual cars uh, transport is, is made difficult, people shift to public transport. Inevitably, they walk a distance to get to the bus stop or train. They walk a distance from their from their destination to get to their uh, place of work or, 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 or leisure. Likewise, if there are policies to promote um, walking, if there are policies to promote cycling, safe cycling, uh, it makes a huge difference. In, in the Cuba uh, uh, economic crisis in, in uh, in 89, for instance, there was a massive reduction in the availability of, of internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, the Japanese provided a million uh, bicycles free. And uh, within a couple of months of the crisis, uh, people were taking vastly more exercise. They were losing weight. 
uh, rates of diabetes and blood pressure went down very quickly. So it's, it's what, did they choose to do this? Hell no. It was all about the environment changing and the environment becoming supportive of healthy activity rather than the opposite. But my view is that there, there are changes we can make to the environment. But if we push people too far, we end up risking a populist backlash. So the problem is that we say we're going to take away your cars, we're going to take away your your um, your sweet sugary treat in your in coffee shops, and and we start to make people think that there's a the conspiracy against them that their their treats their their enjoyment of life is going to be restricted. I agree, uh, and so it's it's the we, it's the us and them that is the problem, and it's a favourite battleground for. Uh, libertarians and and those funded by the tobacco and alcohol industries who who pretend to be libertarians. The when when we look at successful policies like smoke free policies or or like uh, the 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 tax on sugary drinks, then that's all about um, getting the public on side. That's all about advocacy and activist groups like like Action on Sugar, like the Obesity Health Alliance ensuring that sufficient information goes out, stimulating a public debate, uh, encouraging industry uh, uh, representatives to, to make their best possible arguments about individual choice, and then letting people come to their own uh, ju judgments. Uh, the the, the smoke-free legislation in Ireland, then Scotland, then the UK is a brilliant example. In, in each case, there were several months a really quite fierce debate on, on the media with, with politicians picking one side or the other. But over time, the public health argument prevailed. On a level playing, playing field, the, the argument in support of looking after your kids and mine, rather than promoting profits for a multinational company, those tend to triumph for the obvious reason. I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, um, that the industry arguments are acceptable. What I am saying is just because they're sometimes used by industry doesn't mean that there are arguments that should be taken into account. People's own views need to be taken into account. And this idea of socially robust knowledge is in fact what you're telling back to me, which is that we need to make sure that the public are on side and that this can be difficult. Why, for example, do 60% um, of NHS workers in Scotland not have the flu jab? I mean, that is madness. It's crazy because they really need to have it, especially this year. Things like that where we just don't know what the underlying issues are that make people make the wrong choices. I, I, I must agree, but, but with respect, I would suggest that there is actually quite an extensive literature on, on immunisation uh, avoidance and immunisation rejection. And I, I, I would respectfully suggest that there are actually qualitative studies in, in the UK that would, that would throw considerable light on why those individuals are, are avoiding or, or rejecting immunization. One, one of the arguments I, I, I make in this debate is, is, is not that, that, that we need more uh, evidence, it's just that sometimes people don't know where to look for the evidence or they assume it's not available. My, my argument would be that we must not let the perfect be the en, en, enemy of the good. Uh, in, in the majority of cases, we know what the major challenges are, the major burdens of disease are, we know the, ma the main causes and we know the most powerful interventions 
and and usually looking for more evidence is is just an excuse for for dither for delay simon thank you very much i'm out of questions do either of you have any final words I'd, i'd like to make a point and that is that the origins of this debate uh, come from an invitation by a director at Public Health England, John Newton. And um, there is a certain irony in, in that while I am a public health advocate and activist, I am a paid academic researcher in the University of Liverpool. And, and like Aileen, I, I, I strive to produce high quality research. I, 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 I work very hard to identify uh, researchable questions. And, and I, I, I compete with energy to obtain research funding. So, so there is a certain tongue-in-cheek uh, element to the arguments I've been making. And I suspect Aileen would, would concede much the same, being a very much a signed-up public health professional as she is. Absolutely. It's, um, I mean, the, the, it's, it's a little bit of a, a spurious dichotomy. And um, I think we're both pretty conscious of that. You know, there, there are some arguments to be made on both sides, but yeah, I agree. No, well, it, it was very enjoyable. I think you were both able to pull pull together the points where you agreed and also highlight some areas for debate. So, um, no, I appreciate that there's an area to it, a large uh, area to which you both overlap in your your opinions. You've been listening to Aileen Clark and Simon Capewell debate, should action take priority over more research on public health? which is now online on bmj.com. If you've enjoyed this, you can find more episodes, including past head-to-head debates, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We are in most places now. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back next week with a discussion into assisted dying. One doctor tells us how it feels to help someone die, and we'll discuss why the tone of the debate is affecting doctors' participation in it. I'm Robin Badley. Thanks for listening.